0: Beaker Valley Shire Library acknowledges and pays respect to the traditional custodians of the lands, waterways and airspace of the shire in which we live, work and play, the Yuan and Monaro peoples.
1: Hope, Loss, Resilience is a podcast series exploring how people stay hopeful, how they deal with loss and the resilience that binds the Beaker Valley. It focuses on community experiences during the early years of the COVID-19 pandemic.
0: Craig Garrett, a Library Officer with the Bega Valley Shire Library. Earlier this year I began interviewing people across the Bega Valley on the far south coast of New South Wales about their experiences during the early years of the COVID-19 pandemic. What COVID brought to the fore was the visibility of conflict. The divides between how individuals saw and perceived the pandemic and its ramifications for everyday decisions were profound and often on full display. For small communities the question of conflict is experienced really differently than in cities. Working through conflicting ideas or views and values can also, in the best cases, help us to better understand ourselves, grow our empathy and compassion, and build skills fundamental to community resilience. Each episode of Hope Lost Resilience explores a different theme, fire health, education, family, community, business. This episode focuses on local business, The nature of business in the Bega Valley is diverse, and interviews took place at a time when many in the community were still struggling with the hardships of recent years. In this episode, you'll hear from three very different types of organisation. While they can't fully capture the breadth of Bega Valley businesses, they do give valuable insights into how community goals can coexist alongside financial targets. First, let's hear from Eden author Jade Timms with a poem that reflects on the complex relationships we can all have with place, economy, people and change.
2: My father's first real job in Eden was at Duncan Sawmill. And the house I grew up in was built for sawmill workers. When I was a teenager, a friend told me I should be ashamed because my life was built off the destruction of the natural world. Her father was a fisherman so I always felt that was ironic. These days the sawmill is a fraction of what it used to be. The fishing trawlers are mostly gone. Now cruise ships berth where crates of fish used to be unpacked. Buses of cruise passengers drive past the old Duncan sawmill. On day trips to explore, the natural beauty of the Sapphire Coast.
3: My name is Robert Toombs. I've lived in the Bega Valley for around almost 25 years. I'm a grocer at Candidate Bulk Whole Foods. I just remember hearing on the news the pandemic being declared, but I was kind of like, well, surely this isn't going to affect us here in this regional area of Australia. And then when it finally hit that, yeah, it was going to affect us, it was kind of like for me, it was just like this sinking feeling. I was just in a state of frustration around it and especially like in terms of running a small business and especially running a business which is you know unique in Bega in the sense that we operate by consensus so that created more work for us to actually negotiate some of the limitations which were being put on us.
4: I'm Lib. The Whole Foods is a workers' cooperative, so it's owned by the workers um, and managed collectively. Most of the major decisions are made by consensus, meaning that we all have to agree. The real objective is to serve the community. And so we were very conscious of that from the very beginning of the pandemic. We decided to close the doors and just to pack orders for people. For a business to pivot to doing email orders and packing orders for people We just didn't really have the infrastructure for that. But we really were conscious of continuing to provide a service and food to the community in the safest way possible. And that came with a lot of challenges and a lot of continual discussion and how can we do things better. And it's a not-for-profit. It doesn't run at a high margin. So we didn't have a lot of capital to invest in better infrastructure, but we just really wanted to keep the business running So, that the community had good food to eat. So, those early days were quite challenging because that was quite frustrating to a lot of customers, I suppose. And we really had to navigate the need to provide a safe service and to look after the staff and still kind of keep the food pumping as well. For anyone that's been involved in a community organisation, especially one that runs on consensus, you'll know that things never happen that quickly. So, for us to pivot so quickly, In such an uncertain environment as well, like we really didn't know what we were dealing with at that time. It was quite incredible how we all pulled together.
1: My name is Gabrielle Rose and I'm the co-artistic director of Fling Physical Theatre. So financially, we were in a really good position. COVID hit. And we were like, oh my gosh, there's there goes all our revenue. Because Fling is partially funded by state funding through Create New South Wales, but we have to then earn everything else to pay the wages. That was really scary because we were like, what do we do? The business side has been, wow, how do we operate? How do you come out of a year without a debt? And whilst there was a little bit of bushfire funding available, that has stopped. We get a lot of funding for projects, but suddenly our projects weren't happening. So that brought into our awareness this feeling of like, where does our income come from? How do we adapt our practices to ensure we do earn enough?
5: My name is Adam Woolicott. I'm a physiotherapist with Sapphire Coast Physio. Me and two other partners run a fairly moderate size physio business. Probably stepping back a bit in terms of that initial stage, we were following a lot of the news coming out of the UK and Canada, particularly Canada. Canada has a similar physio set up to us and the physios are primary contact practitioners so people can come off the street
2: without a referral.
5: Canada also has a similar bigger health system with public-private. They've got a similar economic and social aspect to them. So, when Canada shut their doors, they shut all physio clinics with hardly any notice, that's when we panicked. Like, we just had not assumed that was possible to do. Our patient group, you know, we have stroke patients that we need to see twice a week, otherwise they will go backwards. We have post-operative care that we have to do. And the idea that they were going to shut was just something that we just really struggled to accept.
6: My name's Caitlin Malloy. I live in Bucca Joe, just out of Bega. I've been here for about three and a half years or something, and I moved because I'm a vegetable farmer and love the community around that in this area. I'm originally from Melbourne, and I work at Candelow Bulk Whole Foods in Bega. I'm a worker member of the co-op. So all decisions are made by consensus agreement by members and casual workers aren't members, but they are involved in those conversations. The decision-making around COVID was like incredibly difficult. Early on decisions were made, taking it very seriously, it was when it was very unknown. There was no treatment, no vaccination. All the shops were shut. The town was totally, really quiet and dead. Because we're an essential shop selling food, we never had any vaccination requirements. Everyone has to be able to come and buy food. So that was not an issue. Later when the shop opened to customers again, the issue around masks and whether we would continue to both wear masks and request customers wear masks, when the laws kept changing about that and we had to make the decision again <laughs> Each time the law would change and the group of workers at that time really kind of ran the whole spectrum of opinions on on masking and on COVID. And so I think it was a very difficult time and a real test of the consensus process because that is a really uncommon way of running a business. <laughs>
7: My name is Daniel Butchers. I live in Bega. I've been in Bega for about 13 years and I started working at the co op about a year before COVID. In the shop here, we noticed that some of our customers disappeared. You know, that was to do with our mask policy or to do with government policy or to do with lockdowns. We don't know, but some customers didn't come back. They found other ways to get their staples. We had a bit of conflict in the shop with customers, especially early on, about mask politics and what we're allowed to enforce and what we're not. And we had a fair bit of internal dialogues, the nicest way to put it. We had a lot of meetings and a lot of discussions and a lot of emails about how to deal with all of it and how to stay safe at work, how to keep our customers safe, how to stay sane in all of this. It was very challenging.
0: From the start of the pandemic, businesses were staring down harsh financial realities. Throughout, businesses had to make constant pivots at the heart of which was often about ensuring its economic survival. But what is also clear was that serving the community from providing food to helping workers dealing with injuries was also key to the mission statement of why the business exists in the first place.
5: The first thing we did from a business point of view was do a budget what happens if you shut down a business, you know, how long can you afford to keep going? And so we did a budget on the idea of closing our doors, seeing hardly anyone, maybe just a few telehealths for about six to eight weeks, and then slowly reopen over a number of months. In the first six weeks, we needed $180,000 of cash And that was paying our staff just a quarter of their normal wages. When I did that mass, it was just phenomenally, just the cost of it. And the concept that you could shut things down is just the economic impact was enormous. And I did feel at that stage, holy crap, are we about to burn down the village to try to save it? And that was my initial reactions to that. There's obviously a society's conversation about... I think if you brought that topic up, you were questioned sometimes about where you don't care about people's lives or or their health. You're putting money first. But I don't know whether that's really the argument because I think people's financial health is very much tied to their physical and mental health as well. And I don't think you can separate those two things at all. So it was really concerning. We, We had staff meetings directly with our staff and we were very... Blunt with them about, and we showed them the figures of what would happen. And this is our rough plan, this is what we could think might happen. It was quite emotional, but we felt everyone still had employment. At the end of the day, we were going to be needed more rather than less as the pandemic receded. A lot of other businesses in town, you sort of thought, geez, you know, are they going to be around in six months' time? Because this is all before JobKeeper, it was all before the government had any help or support for us.
4: Obviously, there was a big impact on the bottom line of the business because to change the business to running in such a way that we closed the shop and we were packing orders, we had to have more staff because it's quite a laborious process. But absolutely, you know, testament to our customers that the business could continue during that phase so we want to honour their support first and foremost I mean I think legally we didn't have to stay open there was a discussion about options at some stage and I guess closing was one of them but I think the reason why we pivoted to packing orders was so that we didn't have to completely close the shop for us it was really about continuing to serve the community and make sure there was access to food, good food <laughs>
7: As a business, sometimes the the rules weren't clear. Like, the, is it lockdown? Lockdown's ending. Another lockdown. The rules are a bit different from one month to the next, and there's a lot of confusion between one state and another, and a lot of discussion around it. So that could have been it. Could have been clearer from the govy what was expected of us at every step. That was a cause of conflict as well. That some of the rules. Like our region had one case, like the whole Beagle Valley had one case. seemed like very, very low risk of catching COVID, which makes it seem unreasonable to have some of these rules on us. And then if we legally are bound by these rules, then we're in conflict with people who are exercising their common sense and asking why is it necessary.
3: Yeah, look, I believe the regions that should have been dealt with differently should be dealt with in exactly the same way as Sydney, Melbourne, London, or any other big city in the world. In a region like this, where there's, it seems so unnecessary, hence a degree of my frustration around the whole thing. I think the vaccinations, the way vaccination mandates came in, could have been dealt with way differently. That was, again, that was so over the top in the way in which that was put on people's own individual freedom and freedom of movement, not to be able to go into a particular shop because you haven't had a vaccination. There was question marks around its effectiveness in any case.
5: Things escalated quite quickly. Within about seven to ten days, we ended up going into that plan of shutting our doors and just going to telehealth. We sent half our physios up to the hospital to get trained up. So physios can be quite good with a lot of the respiratory techniques. So they were up there getting trained and then we were switching to telehealth. Our shutdown lasted about two days until we realised it was completely unworkable. We had all these essential people that needed treatment. Workers that say, the big cheese or a farm that had injured themselves and needed assessment. We had people that worked at the hospital that injured themselves, AMBOs, you name it, all these essential workers needed to be seen and they needed assessment and a level of triage. And so we quickly realized it just wasn't gonna work the way it is. So we reopened on a very limited basis. We had no admin staff, they worked from home. We had one or two physios working at any time. We would go out to the car, bring them in, the patient, treat them, and then walk them back out with minimal overlap with anyone. And we did our very best to have all the infection control. We couldn't even get face masks. We made up our own. We sewed them all up and made our own face masks to keep going.
1: We were lucky we got JobKeeper payments, which were a lifesaver. I think without JobKeeper, we would have been in a really different situation. Government support came in, that was great, but then it stopped. And we still didn't have enough kids coming to ensure that we were viable. We also had a mass of cancellations where we would have children preparing for a show and all of a sudden there'd be a lockdown and the show got canceled. And this kept going on and on and on. But these kind of like pivots became normal. We couldn't apply for money for film. There was this amazing pivot in the dance world to film. Because we couldn't do live shows, the whole industry was like, let's put everything on a screen. That's cool, but it also has limitations around audience engagement. And I think at fling the potency of our work is that we get young people performing in front of other young people. And it's incredibly inspiring.
0: Finally, we hear how COVID's various challenges have led those in local businesses to really think deeply about their role in the community, their values, and how to navigate hard decisions with empathy and compassion in ways that will have lasting implications.
6: I would say now that this is, we're talking in May 2023, since the time of COVID. I think that it's five members resigned so it has been huge turnover three of the five members now including myself are new as members in the last 18 months that's not 100% about our decision-making process but As far as I understand, having done exit interviews with some of these leaving members, it in some way contributed. But on both sides, it's not all people who wanted us to do more or people who thought we were doing too much. It's a mix. And I think the main common thread was it was a really, really difficult process. But in the meantime, we had to run a shop and so like – Not much else could happen in the shop in that time. Like now we're kind of picking up these projects that got started four years ago because they just had to be fully put aside. I think we have all learnt a lot about consensus because this is such a big test and a lot of the decisions that we were making by consensus earlier are like much smaller scale decision making and we kind of just had the same process to apply to a much more emotional issue And so I think we've learned a lot now, but it really took the organization some time to do that. And I think that what it's highlighted is like we need to do more training around this and just keep building that skill set. Because also the skill set gets lost with these exiting members. So some of the people who left the organization had been here for a really long time and with that came a real depth of knowledge not just about the shop but about how these processes run so it's layered yeah there's a lot in there
3: I believe what we've learnt from this is the importance of governance and small business management that's the piece which really wasn't there as much as it needed to be at the start of the pandemic. So we did a, a lot of learning around that. So how to actually navigate some of the decisions which needed to be made and whether it was something which was essentially a financial or a WHNS concern, in which case, you know, it was a director's decision as opposed to the broader membership to actually decide. So we had all of that And I guess, yeah, that's the thing. It's like if we'd actually had a little bit more training around governance before, we would have been in a much better position to navigate COVID as it was. Now, I believe that's where we've got to. Essentially, what it's doing is it's actually making the business is running better. There's more cohesiveness. I believe we lost trade and I know we lost customers through COVID, but we've really tightened up the way in which we operate so we had people leave and we were we were scrambling at one point just to actually get shifts filled and keep the business going so there was a time there where it was it was hard you know there was the whole job keeper thing which went on there and which we were almost where there was a if you if your sales drops by 30 or your turnover drops by 30 percent then basically you got given money to actually pay all your workers regardless. That never actually happened to us. We were close. We were on the edge of that, which so we never actually were able to, to get that extra funding. As a community-owned business, essentially, we, we knew we had to keep going through this. We were supporting ourselves as much as we were supporting the community at large, and we know why we're here, and it's because of the community here and because the community wants us to be here. This is why we operate as a business. We operate with the full support of the community.
1: The funding bodies were really great. Like they were very flexible with us and have been wonderful. But I think this pressure that's come from COVID, particularly the financial pressure, like it's across all of our country and so it just has this ripple effect that maybe doesn't happen quickly but it's this sort of wearing away of the resources that we were relying on to operate. You know, no one's got anything to give. It's been hard getting people back into the theatre to know that they are safe and they can trust us, not just us but I think the industry, that we are all working really hard to ensure that people are going to come see work and not go home and get unwell. And it's about sort of convincing people that, dance is a really safe space and it's actually really good for you. What did happen in those last years is I kept applying for lots of grants. (laughs) And I think that whilst the activities maybe weren't drumming, it was like, yeah, we are coming back. We know we're coming back. And so we had to keep applying for grants to get projects underway because you have to apply for them two years in advance sometimes. So there's a lot of forward planning. There's a lot of the team working together to work out, okay, how do we approach this now? And there was a lot of community engagement in, in the sense of speaking with families going, what feels good? What would you like to do? How can we make this work? What can Fling do to be a really happy, great, safe space for your child or for you if you're an adult coming to dance with us?
5: From our point of view, the government guidelines are a little bit vague in terms of a private physio clinic which was good for us because it allowed us to make some rational decisions around where we felt the risk profile was there was a few people we wouldn't see in the rooms we would keep them at home and then we would send someone to them so that they weren't getting exposed to anything other than just the least we could there was a fairly robust discussion going on through the physio world on social media quite emotional a lot of the city-based physio clinics were quite upset that everyone wasn't shutting their doors. And they actually said there was a couple of posts saying, you know, you're not essential, you need to shut your doors. A few rural practitioners logged on and said, hang on, that's not our experience. We don't have 24 hour medical centers. We have one hospital in town that will potentially be overwhelmed. We are triaging people. We need to see people. And so, it was a bit sad to see that I think the city-based clinics really had no idea what we do in rural areas and that did cause significant conflict within the profession you know we're an important part of the community and so we just did the best we could but there was no way we could have zero risk. I think by about three months we were pretty much running to capacity but we were having lots of gaps during the day to make sure we kept cleaning everything down and minimise people no one could wait in the waiting room so you had to go back out and into the car and things like that to grab them so we were back to a high level of busyness but we were seeing less patients because we were trying to spend a lot more time with hygiene and minimizing overlap between the patients JobKeeper was a lifesaver for us there's been criticisms of it some of it quite rightly but from our point of view it was the thing that saved us and we could make sure we didn't lose any physios we could link them into the business and say no you still got a job even though we were only seeing a lot less patients we could make it work financially that the business wasn't going backwards too badly
7: oh well, we got a lot of love and a lot of positive feedback and a lot of people saying thank you for staying open thank you for being here just a lot of love so we felt very supportive took the heroism out of it. It It's easy to come to work and serve the community and give them food. And We persisted with wearing a mask longer than most other businesses, and a lot of our customers thank us for that as well. We have a lot of suppliers supplying a small store. Because of that, we were often more resilient than the supermarkets. That was really noticeable. We never ran out of toilet paper, for example. There was a few things that came and went, but we never ran dry of too much because of COVID. Supply interruptions, but our shelves were never empty. We had some practice from the bushfire experience with interruptions to supply chain and panic buying. We were in a position to prepare for it and we did load up our storeroom as if we were expecting more supply interruptions. Socially in the team, too, we probably have the most politically diverse team that the co ops ever had, like in terms of values and spectrum of. Ideas, I suppose. You know, we came through some conflict and we got to know each other a lot better through that, like battling out why do you have this position or where are you coming from for this stance. I found that quite thrilling to get to know my colleagues a bit better through that.
4: I also feel really proud of the way that people are continuing to refine how we make decisions and how we communicate with each other and how we negotiate and how we put the best interests of the co-op first while also managing to respect differing perspectives and the differing needs of the staff, some of whom are much more exposed to risk. The risk of COVID being quite serious for them or their family members than others It's been an enormous opportunity for growth, just personally for me, having to really stand my ground at times and then at other times be flexible and really listen to the needs and concerns of others and trying to balance those. That's a really incredible personal experience. I guess that's just an example of the cloud, that cloud of stress that that the pandemic has created having somewhat of a silver lining. That's resulted in many of us being more skillful and maybe trial by fire and learning from our mistakes, I hope, as well. I think that these are skills that we need more in our society, more generally the ability to work with people and talk through tough issues and figure out our ways through really strong disagreements. I really want to celebrate the way that the Whole Foods staff are really stepping up and working on that and building those skills, because I think that's something beautiful that we all need more of.
0: You've been listening to Business, the fifth episode in Hope Lost Resilience, a Beaker Valley Shire Library production. You can find other episodes wherever you find your podcasts. A huge thanks to all those stories you heard. Robert Toombs, Lib, Gabrielle Rose, Adam Woolicott... Caitlin Malloy and Dan Butchers. These interviews are part of the Beaker Valley Shire Library's Oral Histories Project, Talking Together. You can hear or read the full interviews, transcripts and more in the Beaker Valley Shire Library's catalogue. Go to library.beakervalley.nsw.gov.au. Or if you're in the Beaker Valley, just pop into the library and ask a librarian. If this episode has brought up anything for you, you can reach Lifeline on 13 11 14 if you're in the Beaker Valley and would like to connect with mental health services, you can call free 1-800-011-511-24hours-7days. You can find full links to resources in our show notes. The music you heard was Rocks and Snow by David Ross MacDonald. Find his work at davidrossmcdonald.bandcamp.com. Our opening poem was by Jade Timms. The music was Hibernation by Hushed. We'd also like to thank the Candelo Roadshow Radio Hour, Community Radio 93.7 Edge FM, and Headspace Beaker. And additional thanks to our transcribers, Joe Osler, Alexander Masika, Trish Dive, Janet Reynolds, Project Lead and Management, Linda Albertson and Suki Taval. Extra Organisational Help, Anita Coakley, Carly MacDonald, and Emma Woolley and Vanessa Barrett, Web Design, Natalie martin Remett. Scripting and Podcast Production, Shona Hawkes, the principal production, including audio and sound design, is by Craig Garrett.
1: This program is part of the Beaver Valley Shire Libraries Talking Together Oral Histories Project, funded under the Joint Australian Government, New South Wales Government, Disaster Recovery Funding Arrangements 2018 through the New South Wales Reconstruction Authority. The views expressed do not necessarily represent the views of the New South Wales Government.